You're listening to the Set the Tone podcast with Anthony Manuel. Every week, I'll be talking to a new guest with a refreshing perspective on body, mind, and spirit to help you see the world and your life in a slightly different way. I hope these conversations inspire you and help set the tone for a new way of being. is my really, really good friend, Chris Wainwright, who wrote the absolute best bio. Uh, instead of an intro that I usually just do off the cuff, I'm actually going to read his bio ad verbatim because I think it was amazing. Chris is a human man. He did a degree in physics, went to grad school for the same thing, and gained a fundamental understanding of the way the universe works. He then found out that that doesn't really help you feel better about your own existence and became very confused. Currently, he is the director of marketing for a software company in Toronto, an expectant father, and worse at golf than he wants to be. He believes that 90% of the world's problems arise because the average person can't sit still in an empty room for 24 hours. Anthony told him that he could write literally anything he wanted, chair-stealing Bob Marley chicken in his bio. And with that, I I just want to say that's... A, the best bio that has ever been written for a podcast or for anything else that I've produced. And it's also kind of covering some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you know, one one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot is just how um, rationalism and trying to figure out the fundamental way that the universe works doesn't necessarily translate to happiness or making you feel, quote, better about your own existence. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about your journey through that, man. So why did that leave you feeling confused when you, and or why did you pursue physics? Did you, did you kind of have an assumption that it would give you more answers about life and, and your own existence? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, at the end of the day, like physics was not the first thing I centered in on. What I centered in on was that there was some like trail of logical breadcrumbs to be followed, right? Like in school, you start to learn certain things. And what you realize is that there are hierarchies of knowledge. And those hierarchies of knowledge sort of all keep connecting down and like stay self-consistent with each other, right? So you learn one piece of information and then you learn another piece of information and you realize, oh, like those two things exist in the same broader scale of information. They are like perfectly consistent. They follow the same rules. They're emergent of the same behavior, right? So you learn basic science and you, you kind of start following this rabbit hole. And physics really is kind of just the end of that rabbit hole. Like, you know, you, the sort of saying goes, it's just sort of that like biology is just sort of like top level chemistry and chemistry is sort of just like top level level physics, right? And then biology describes life, which is sociology, but like there's nothing after physics, maybe math, which is like the language of it. But even then Mm. physics is basically at its core, just like first principles, how does the thing work? What thing? Like the thing, the whole thing starting from scratch, like how did it start? What is the smallest thing? You know, how do you follow the trail of the smallest thing to the biggest thing? And, you know, there is a, there is something very powerful in that that appealed to me, um, both in sort of like the fact that it seemed to give me an answer. Uh, and I think also just as a lot of people when they're young don't realize, like you're just searching for a sense of control and objectivity mm-hmm. and tr- uh, truth and objectivity gives you a sense of control psychologically that few things can. So definitely when I was younger, that's, that's really why I stepped into it, I think. 
So that sense of control that you gain from objectivity, and I, I mean, I, I kind of pursued that or have pursued that in my own personal life with things like personal training or nutrition. I spent probably 10,000 hours trying to figure out the right way to eat according to, you know, biological principles or nutritional principles and, and anthropological principles and, and kind of tried, same thing, followed those breadcrumbs to try and find the, the objective truth specifically so that I had control. But within that level of control, I find there are limitations to how much control you actually have. And that simply knowing objective truth doesn't actually give you the sense of control that you think it might. So did you kind of experience that? Is that is that sort of where you were left feeling confused? Was that, you know, in those answers, you didn't have the control you thought you would over your own being? Or what 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 was the part that kind of left you feeling confused or maybe dissatisfied? Well, you just get to a certain point with all of it where it becomes very clear that it has nothing to do with anything. Like, the, the, the deeper you go, right, into physics, the, the farther down the, you know, information rabbit hole you find yourself. And the problem there is you start to have to generalize more and more. And what you're really gaining is, like, generalized objective truth. And on its surface, that seems very powerful because if you have, like, first principles ways of analyzing a given situation, what happens is you can almost always come up with an explanation if you back it up far enough. Like theoretically, if you have all the information and you know like the first causation, right, you can just kind of follow that all the way up. And the problem is that none of that has anything to do with execution. None of that has anything to do with action or doing anything with it. It doesn't matter how much information you gain or how many like layers of the thing you can explain. If you can't execute on the layer that you want to, it's sort of irrelevant. And I became, I don't know, disillusioned by the dig for more when I realized that all that was going to happen was that I was going to be able to explain something increasingly more irrelevant to the, like my, my life. Right. And that's not to say it's so, not worthwhile to study. Like it, it is. And people that study physics are doing something incredible to me because it, it takes a really specific kind of intellectual curiosity. Like it's almost its purest form where you're going, I don't even need this to like do anything for me. I just want the next thing. Like that's incredible. Yeah. And at its, in essence, initially I was like, that's me. That's who I want to be. I want to be the guy who's just always going to follow that. And it turns out that I was like way too narcissistic to like give up like myself for a study. So mm. like, so, so how do, you, how do you define narcissism in that way? Because I, I don't know if you're being facetious or if that's mm -hmm. just a, because, uh, you know, narcissism is one of those things that when you talk about like a narcissistic personality disorder, um, are you are you referring to that degree? Because I find people who, who have like NPD, for example, don't have the wherewithal to at least call themselves out to, 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 to have, you know, to, to, to acknowledge that's, their narcissism. Let's, let's change the, the description. Let's not use narcissism right. because it has an association with the personality disorder. Let's call it undeniable self-interest. Okay. Uh, you're right. Narcissism carries with it a set of behaviors on top, I think, uh, that are, and it's sort of like this classified thing, piece of behavior. I think what I really mean is at the end of the day, I have never been more interested in anything than I am in myself. Like there has never been anything that felt as worthwhile in pursuing 
you know, the, the, the metaphorical, like, belunking that I'm doing, right, into any topic, it's always the most gratifying and satisfying inside myself, not inside, you know, what is the, like, behavior of quarks and, like, how does that relate <laughs> to this, like, graph, you know, as interesting as that may be. Yeah, but you want to know how those quarks in that graph relates to you and your own existence. Yeah, I mean, if it, and the, the reality is that it, it doesn't relate to my existence on any level that's actionable or usable. It definitely relates to my existence. In fact, it underlies my whole existence. But like, that doesn't change the fact that if I, you know, walk into a wall, it hurts. Like, it, you know, my decisions but, still mitigate my reality or create it in some capacity, not in some like weird way, but in like a, I'm just like moving through the world way. Right. So, I mean, you know, it was interesting in, in a previous podcast, I had a discussion with someone about this, this idea that, you know, your experience of yourself kind of remains independent of your understanding of yourself as a collection of cells or a biological function or a system of atoms or molecules or energy. It doesn't matter how you visualize or, or imagine yourself as an abstraction, you still have an experience of self that operates in, in different linguistic patterns and different uh, social patterns. You still, you know, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge that your body is made up of 99.9% .9 empty space because you're made up of atoms, you still get hungry and you need to eat food, right? And, and so yeah. I think that you know, that differentiation between experience and understanding the nature of yourself on a, on a you know, a, a basic fundamental physical level uh, in it's, it's the difference between experience and abstraction, ultimately. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with what you said. I don't, I don't have a, I mean, I have many tangents, but I, I, I think, yeah, like it's just an important distinction to make. And I think a lot of confusion happens when people just blur those two lines. Like when people fail to really understand that the abstraction of experience of self versus the physical reality of experience of self though they are the same thing at the base level um, and though they are two separate things at an experiential level that doesn't mean that the characteristics in those two distinctions can share like base i don't know if that makes sense mm -hmm. or not no it does it does okay. um i want to rewind a little bit too um and talk to you about something a little more fundamental because one of the things you said was at base level I'm most interested in myself. There's nothing that I find more interesting than self. And one of the topics that I find most fascinating is the definition of self. So when you say myself, what to you is the self? And why is it the most interesting thing to you? Well, this is, you kind of just answered the question in your description, right? That's the point is, hmm. I don't even know what myself is. Like I, I live in it and I don't know. But one of the reasons it's interesting is because despite the fact that I've spent my entire life examining it, I have no idea what it is, right? And I still struggle to predict it and understand it in ways that I don't understand. So there's an aspect of like chaos there or you know unpredictability that I find quite interesting in myself. Um, I think in, like if we're going to talk about what, what I define as self, there's kind of two separate journeys that I'm taking. There's either what is myself 
in proximity to the greater objective truth. So that's like mm. essentially the hard problem of consciousness, which I have made no progress on like any more than any other person has ever made, right? Uh, there is also like, what is the set of behaviors that defines who I am? How in touch with those things am I? How can I use that information to predict and then potentially filter or modify my behavior in a way to improve the outcome of my existence towards the preferences that I have, which are constantly shifting? Because the preferences change all the time. The actual set of behaviors also change all the time. You need to develop this like metacognition self that sits there and its entire job is like not to exist other than to analyze the existence. Like it doesn't get to have its own like will or thought or desire. It's only purpose. It's like, you know, the Rick and Morty, like you exist to pass butter, right? Like that part <laughs> of myself, like you exist just to like look around and report back. Like you don't have your own thoughts. You don't have your whatever, but it's a part of myself. Um, and the yeah. development of that in my interest in like developing that part is there because it has the highest return on anything that exists mm. because I know. Yeah. Go ahead. Would you say it's almost like a distinguishing between, you know, the sort of um, sense of conscious decision and then more automatic or subconscious behavior and kind of learning to program these, these sort of almost reactionary or habitual patterns that, that are kind of running in the background to kind of suit a more conscious purpose or is that, or is that too much of a stretch? I think what I'm searching for is like the grail of awakening that most people are. I, I just think that I'm starting from a place that I believe is uh, simultaneously advantageous and then confusing advantageous. Um, mm. So like I'm trying to figure out, like I know, for example, that it is possible in my bio, I said this, right? Like I believe most of the world's problems arise because like nobody can sit still in an empty room for 24 hours or whatever. The, the essence of that is to say that like most problems are caused by the fact that we just can't stop ourselves from fulfilling like the base urges and the things that pop up all the time. Like we, we need to keep stimulating or acting or doing in order to keep existing. And so a lot of the times bad things happen or good things, but definitely bad things is because people just, they can't stop. They can't just sit there and go like, I need to let this pass. I have no ability to let it pass. Whatever this is that's taking over me, I need to behave as opposed to like working with it. And I know that it's possible because there are people in the world like monks and whatever, who can just be like, I'll just like sit here for three months and stare at a flower and I'm like blissfully happy. And I'm like, you're a human being. We're not actually like that different biologically. Like, I don't think this is like, there might be some innate biological advantage that you have in your like neurobiology, but I still think what you're accessing is your biology is close enough to me, yet your experience is so far away from mine that like, I must be missing something here. Like there is clearly a way to like skip a bunch of this nonsense and directly modulate very baseline experience. And, and know that baseline experience is the thing that's controlling everything you do, right? Like I don't have a complex behavior that an emotion emerges from. I have an emotion that a complex behavior emerges from. It's always that order. Like the rationalization of your own existence comes after it happens, right? Like that's the like false sense of self or ego that we all have. Like you're just basically in this race against the universe playing your life out to like explain it to yourself. 
You're like, that's why I did this, of course. And you're like, you know, as if that had anything to do with controlling doing it. I, I kind of want to make a, uh, like a, just um, an observation when you were bringing up like the idea of this monk that whose, whose biology is, is virtually identical to yours, but somehow can access this state of perfect contentment by sitting still and looking at a flower for three months. So as the, as the, as the analogy goes, right. And sure. oftentimes, you know, as someone who's studied a lot of Eastern philosophical thought, whose main purpose is to get to that, that awakened state of just contentment with the present moment, Oftentimes the journey is sort of described as you start as a human being who doesn't know what the hell is going on. And everything that you're doing is, is, uh, you know, simple and in the moment, but it's more based on those impulses of like, I got to go eat. I got to go pee. I got to go have sex. I got to go do like, it's the, it's the constant maintenance without thought. And then eventually that inability to, uh, you know, sort of temper some of those impulses, we'll call them causes suffering right and humanity starts to suffer and and then you get so basically it starts from simplicity it evolves into this complex system of discipline of philosophy of trying to understand why things are the way they are and it's this attempt to gain control over everything but then the end point is letting go of all those complex things and returning to a more sophisticated state of simplicity so you almost drop the philosophy you drop the complex explanations yep. and it's it's returning to this state of not necessarily like child like because because a child has no control a child has no discipline they don't have the ability to think but that thinking process and, and all those things become less burdened or weighed down by trying to explain everything in abstraction and i think the the difference is is moving from moving away from abstraction and moving towards just the experiential side of things and that's been my understanding, partially experienced, because I float in and out of it. I try to, I, I still have all my neuroses and my anxieties and, and different things. But for the most part, I've tried to uh, gracefully let go of most philosophical underpinnings of my experience. And the result has been my experience has, has felt a lot lighter because I'm not trying to carry all these abstractions with me at all time. Well, good for you. Uh, my, like, I don't really understand how you can actually be a person without that. I mean, this is my whole problem with the, like, letting go and, like, sort of baser experiences. When I described earlier saying I feel like I'm at an advantage, yet somehow it's a disadvantage, is yeah. I actually don't find it difficult to turn off completely. Mm. It's actually, like, a skill set that I have. The problem is that it, what it feels like is giving up. And mm. anytime I do it for any period of time, like I can turn, like the way I deal with all things is like this giant like knob where I just go, fine, I'll just turn it all off for now until it goes away, right? And the problem is like, I feel like I'm dying when I do Like, I don't really understand an experience that doesn't have suffering or stimulation. Like without that, I'm not really alive. Like there's no purpose. So every right. time I get into that state, I, I like become inevitably aware of the fact that like I could just, this could be it. Like I'll just give up and nothing, like nothing matters. That's whatever, sure, that's fine. Like, and that means I'll just, I'll die here. Like I'll just, just lie here on the floor and I won't move until, you know, I'll just be catatonic and whatever. And 
the problem is that somewhere deep in my brain is going, well, that hasn't really solved the problem, man. Like, well, like, and so the return you talk about of like, you get to this state where you've let go of everything. Well, I don't for think me, it feels like, control, right? Like, cause, cause what you're describing is sort of, like you said, you're shutting off. But what I think the, the, there's a subtle, dis, like, there's a subtle differentiation in that you still have all these philosophies and everything that you've learned is still with you. It's just, you're not carrying it with you in everything that you do. And you're not trying to filter every experience and you're not trying to extract some sort of deeper philosophical significance out of everything that you do. And, and, you know, even though I'm able to talk about letting go of my philosophies and my micromanaging of trying to understand everything in terms of first principles and everything, I still can talk about them without necessarily being identified or, or cling to them necessarily. That's sort of, that's sort of the differentiation that I make where it's, you don't just let go because even the monk that's sitting there looking at a flower for months at a time, doesn't absolve them absolve themselves of the realities of needing to take a piss or right. needing to eat and they still experience physical pain if they stub their toe and yeah. if they're exposed to frustrating situations or really like monks uh you know a lot of a lot of eastern philosophies ended up criticizing the lifestyle of ascetics and monks because they isolate themselves and they don't have to deal with the realities of the world and so rather than actually confronting the problem of human suffering head on, they try to create an environment for themselves where suffering is irrelevant and they can just focus on, you know, clearing their mind out, which in my mind is giving up, right? And so I think the, the nuance is being able to uh, have this state of equanimity and presence um, and appreciation for philosophy without carrying it everywhere while still acknowledging that, you know, human suffering is a reality, human pain is a reality there are still problems in the world just because you uh, meditate or because you have this present awareness or this this you know general state of contentment with your own being it doesn't mean that there aren't political problems or social problems or environmental problems it just means that you remain sort of uh in a level state throughout that you know, even if you do have ups and downs, you're just not thrown in a, an out of control washing machine of emotion and reaction. It sounds like controlled ignorance to me. Like, I don't really believe you can stop carrying it. I think you can get yourself to a state where you are not aware of it. I think you can get yourself to a state where you have like shut it out and it is not impacting your present moment experience. But I don't think you can like not like the weight is there. Like, where is it going? You have nowhere to put it. It's inside of you. Inside of you is everywhere. Like you can't displace it, right? Like, and then bring it back. You could destroy it and have it be turned into something else. But like live alchemy of like your carrying of philosophy into nothing makes no sense. It has to go somewhere. And so whatever it's going into, you're shutting off in this state. So I, I just don't, like, I don't really see it compatible to like be functional and in this state. You have to be carrying some framework of reality that has philosophical underpinnings and like logical underpinnings in order to do anything, including like anything that involves moving, communicating, like at all, you need to have some philosophical underpinning present or you can't operate period. Well, and I think this is, this is an interesting thing because this is a difference between trying to break down a state of being into philosophical abstractions and just living outright in in the state of being right so a person who is present can't really explain what the philosophy of presence is unless you're 
Eckhart Tolle, but even Eckhart Tolle is like everything that he says, it feels fluffy and airy and impractical because it's abstraction. It's not the actual state of being, it's just words, right? So, so a state of being of presence, um, you know, I, I almost equate what, what you said is like, you know, it reminds me of the stoic philosophy, which is developing, uh, cultivating dispassion towards things that you can't control and focusing intently on executing on the things that you can control and that it creates mental lightness. They basically think that focusing or, or wasting energy on stress that or stressing out on things that you, that are far outside of the realm of personal control is a fundamental waste of energy. And that is a philosophical framework in itself, right? And that is in a way you use the terms cultivated or selected ignorance in a way it's, it's basically just acknowledging it's, it's, I don't think it's, um, alchemizing whether or not you have these philosophical underpinnings, but it's using your own philosophical underpinnings to select appropriate emotional responses to the realities of the world, right? So if, if there's something that you can't outright control, then to be, you know, not, you know, to have compassion, but then be dispassionate about it and not allow it to destroy your own internal world is, is, is a useful thing to have. It's kind of like, okay. It Living presently at most, in my view, can can just, it's a focusing of what you are into a singular thing. It's still the, like, all the pipes are still there. Like, if you have philosophical pipes, maybe, yes, you stop one, running water through them. I agree with that. And you focus all your water on the one middle pipe that all it's doing is, like, processing the next 0.5 seconds. But all the piping is still there. And like you are using some form of energy to focus that like beam, right? Or that pipe of water. And inevitably, when you stop being in that state, it's all still going to rush back into the pipes that are there. So when we, when we talk about like stopping to carry, this is what I'm saying. Like, I don't like the weight analogy because you're not getting rid of it. You can't get right. rid of a part of yourself in a moment. It's still there somewhere in the like weird ethereal nature of who you are. Okay. In like you space. But I agree that you can basically stop like <clears throat> lighting it up. You can mm. stop passing water through it. You can stop giving it significance in you space. Mm. But I think that the like architecture remains. Sure. Yeah. And and I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that or I don't contest that in any way. I yeah. think what it what it ends up being is you have a different relationship with philosophy as basically you start experiencing life more than breaking it down into philosophical abstractions. And you still have those philosophical frameworks and you still have those frameworks of abstractions for you to interpret them, but the interpretation is a little bit more automatic and a little less, uh, we'll call it cerebral. If yeah, the problem sense. is that things that don't have an explanation are equivalent to everything. That makes no sense. Like, this is the thing, right? People go like, well, like, I can't give you like a logical philosophical explanation for what living in the present is. And I'm like, cool, I can't give you a logical philosophical explanation for why there's like a purple invisible dinosaur in front of you. Like, we just said the same thing. Like, this is the only thing we have to explain things, man. And I'm not undercutting the like experiential part of it, yeah. but there's no way to communicate it with other people. And fundamentally in my world, if an idea that you have cannot be passed to another person through communication it is a useless idea yeah. like it because it because it, it could never have been a real idea because it would have died with the first person who ever had it 
Like it, right. it, it, like it had to have. But then again, we're, we're, we're kind of blending the line between idea and state of being again, right? So a state of being is, is less of an idea unless you're trying to break it down into an idea, right? Like you can, you can break down the state of being of, uh, of being excited to see your partner when they come home from work, right? Like that's an easy one. It's like, oh, you know, I get, the, I get this feeling, I get these emotions in my stomach. I have this relationship with this person. It's very easy to, to describe as a state of being. To describe a state of being of just like presence, for example, presence is, is I guess, ultimately, if you're talking about selective focus, it's, it is uh, an undistracted state of what is happening in front of you. And yeah, I guess at the end of the day, you can, like you said, I, I don't, basically, I'm, I'm saying that I don't disagree with you, but I'm also saying that um, some of the, there, there are difficulties in trying to break it down too much into philosophical frameworks because words are something that retroactively explains something that happens in the past when you're living something in the present. Sure, but there's still a descriptive model for what's happening in the present. And sure. as it pertains to like most human experiences, we're pretty, we, we understand that. Like, I don't care how presently you're living, you're still going to like, Ball if you step off a cliff like like there are just things that are happening independent of this and so you're never full like i don't understand if there can be a state of being that it has no thing like it, it it's not a state of being anymore then like you're a wave or you're the water but you can't be a not a wave but you're still a wave in the like if you stop being a an oscillation if you stop being something that isn't just the medium all you are is the medium and you are not the medium. There is just the medium. So I, what I don't like about the, the like idea is that you can, that there can be a state of being that is this. I appreciate that there is an ability to stop being and just like essentially enact the universe as it is through your biology and like not interact with that internally and like live presently. But that's not a state of being anymore by my definition. Now you're just like a bunch of cells moving around doing stuff. You're not, you don't exist. You're just like stuff happening. You exist when you like oscillate. You exist when you go, the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, a like a state of being where you don't have metacognition is just action. And I don't mm. really think, I think action is a fundamental state of being where mm. like you are no different than a tree that's blowing in the wind. You're just, Doing the thing that you have to be doing. Okay, so can I, can I differentiate something? Because I, I kind of agree with what you're saying, but then there becomes a problem with me when I think of flow states when you're in the zone writing about something yep. and you're not you're not mentally getting in your own way, or if you're playing guitar. Yep. I mean, you've explained you've experienced flow states where there there is no real sense of metacognition happening while you're while you're doing these things and yet there is a still yeah, sense of, of consciousness. I, I do have an explanation for this which is that what a flow state really is is it's like a, a preconceived state of being that mm. like happens that you don't need to direct like there's basically like a loop or like some shape right for the energy to follow and you get into the right path of stimulation or action or whatever your brain can get caught in a like a positive like essentially a positive feedback loop where it just goes oh like this is great like you it's almost like you're you have for a moment you're defying like psychological thermodynamics 
like you're going and you're going because you found some, you know, state where there's no resistance. But I think that's based on some pre-existent hierarchy. Like it's based on right. something where you've gone, oh, I, I practiced guitar. I've like learned all these like mind to brain connections for fingers. I have this internal model of what music is and like how it makes me feel and how I'm stimulated when I hear it. All of that goes into the, when you lose yourself in guitar, there is some like piece of your being that even though it's not actively being enacted, it's like behind what's happening. Like it is, right. it is determining the outcome. And I think that's very different than just being. Like flow state to me is an expression of like an efficient state of being for some mm -hmm. period of time. Okay, so what if the the state of being, which people call presence, or this sort of ethereal woken up state, is kind of emulating that you know operating within your own frameworks without getting in your way with metacognition? It's it's a similar idea. It's allowing yourself. You know, it's like you know, for me, flow state. When I play guitar, I've thought about this a lot. It's like I'm running grooves that I built over time. Like the the, the scales that I play, I've played a thousand times. Yeah. And the reason that I can get into a flow state is because I have played them a thousand times and that neurological pattern is so grooved in that I can run it on automatic. And like you said, I do have a pre-existing framework of what music sounds good to me. So I try to match that framework and I try to run in these grooves. And sometimes my brain will fire in novel ways and I'll create something that even surprises me because again, I'm not thinking about it. But in in uh, you know Zen philosophy, for example, they kind of talk about that as the, it's it's a spontaneous state, and you sort of operate your life in that way, where it's still you're still fundamentally yourself, you're still utilizing or running through these frameworks, but because you're not cognizing about these frameworks as much, they're able to happen in a more fluid or unobstructed way. Basically, you're acting without the obstruction of your own psyche in the way of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I buy that. My problem with it is it's so impossibly unsustainable by definition because there's just too much that can disturb it. Mm. Like, like if you break it down into the simplest of actions, like I have this, I have a pen here in front of me, right? Mm -hmm. So if I go, what I'm doing is I'm going to pick up the pen. Presentness is basically chasing your own like ability to anticipate the world. So if I go to pick up a pen, I have enough time in that like quarter of a second to like look at the pen and look at the table and see that it's yellow and know that I'm putting my hand out and know that I want it to be between my end. Like there's a lot happening, right? It descriptively in my experience. If I'm chasing presentness, what I'm chasing is essentially I'm like a little bit lagged to what I'm doing all the time at the expense of understanding it. The presentness is like smushing it up against what's happening, right? So that like you have no longer have the time in like, for where you are, the level of where you're paying attention. Like you're paying attention at the end of your hand. Like you're at the very edge of what you're doing all the time. And that's great, but how could you possibly like switch between two different tasks and maintain that? It takes a completely different kind of control in every unique situation to enact that kind of thing. And so, the, and, and because it's unfalsifiable, this is why I've become very skeptical of it from the perspective of how much it's actually being enacted by the people who claim to be enacting it. Like right. it's really easy to fake it because like all you gotta do is like be non-reactive. And it's really hard to tell the difference between being non-reactive and being present. Right. Like, and I mean, this is, you know, what, what you're saying reminds me of, uh, you know, in Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, he tells that story of when he was 
uh, sitting with a guru and there was this girl who claimed that she was she didn't have a thought for three weeks and then another zen teacher said okay well we'll just sit here and wait until you have a thought and then she realized that she was just thinking about not thinking and confused that thought of not thinking for yeah. being devoid of thoughts right and so you know like what you're saying is to my understanding what i'm hearing rather is that it's it, because you can't prove that you're not thinking about what you're doing there's no it's it's it, there's no way to determine the validity or authenticity of someone actually living in presence i know for me right now um as i'm talking i'm not like there's no metacognition of the thoughts that i'm saying there's no like you and i uh, presumably are in some some of somewhat of a flow state allow like one of one of my favorite things about having a conversation with you is because our minds think in terms of the same level of abstraction we're able yeah. to flow with conversation without having to get too caught up in thinking about what we're going to say next and to me that is that is a state of presence right it, with with me it's like while i can still be troubled and i can still be stumped by some of the things that you say i feel it doesn't necessarily pull me out of the present moment and it doesn't make me feel neurotic or cerebral while i'm doing it i'll like i'll jump on this train like in a conversation is the most present I ever feel. Like, personally, I have no idea what I'm about to say next at any given moment. And I'm very aware of that, right? As soon as I stop talking, as soon as you start talking, as soon as there's an interruption, there is just a, like, massive inflow of analysis and, like, cognition trying to, like, re-update the model. But if I get into speaking, I'm just, like, I am listening to myself. Like, I, I genuinely don't know what's coming next. And so that is not a feeling that I get when I am operating in most situations. So I understand how it can, like, that feeling of presentness can feel good or, like, flow. But it doesn't make me impervious to a lot of the things that people claim presentness does. It doesn't change the fact that if I'm in a conversation, like, and somebody stabs me with a knife, that, like... <laughs> I, I'm not going to suddenly be able to be like, well, also the pain is like a present experience and actually pain is a function of time. And if I'm not experiencing time, then I'm not like, it's still going to hurt. Right. And so like, I'm not really present. I'm like flowing close to the front of my face, but I'm never like right at the front, hmm. which I consider so what are the, to be present. What are some of the, like when you, when you said there are some things that people claim about presence that are erroneous or, or the state of being of like, first of all, presence is such a, like an ambiguous term for me. The simplest way is that you're just unobstructed about anxiety about the future and depression about the past. And you're just focused on life as it's happening. Um, and even if you're planning for the future, you're not creating anxiety about it. You're just trying to you focus. You can't on be planning for the future and presentness. That's my problem with it is it's a useless state of mind. You can't do anything outside of what you're going to do. You can't even have a concept like planning because now you're invoking time. And if you invoke time, presence is gone. You've invoked a concept that destroys presentness at its core. Presence but is that true? Like you can cognize, you can cognize in the present moment. And for me, I have had, I've had moments where, and this is the thing, like the whole living in the past, living in the future thing, I think is allowing yourself to feel emotions that don't exist, right? Or, or emotions about situations that don't exist. And so for me, presence is allowing myself to, you know, if I remember something in the past and I catch myself feeling an emotion that I felt in the past to be like, okay, well, like, look at where you are right now. You're remembering this scenario and you're creating this emotion. 
you can you can cognize in the present and not be affected by it as if you're living. That just that. sounds like regular old metacognition to me. That just sounds like being like mindful of your existence, which is right. like the opposite of presence to me. So presence. So, but but I think this is where we this is maybe where we're diverging a little bit. Your definition. Yeah, 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 we are. I'm I'm equating it to something far greater. Like I'm equating right. it to the sort of like awakening type state that people often claim to be in, right? Where they're like, I'm mm -hmm. always living in the present moment. And like, I, you know, I'm not tied to anything. And, you know, like I am perfectly content. The, like the, it's like the, the claim of that woman you talked about. Um, yeah. If you want to, if you want, if your definition of being present is, I am basically in flow capable of being mindful of my own behavior and actions and modulating them. That to me, that's just regular old life. I, like I, that's just like what I'm always trying to do. Uh, yeah, but what, what, and if that's all, what, what if it all, what if that is all that it is and you can be content with that, right? Like if you can, if, if that is a yeah. regular old life and that's, yeah, that's you have me thing. in the first half, like there <laughs> kind of thing. Like, yeah, I, I actually think it is all there is. The problem is being content with it. The problem is not letting it run away with itself. Right. right. The problem is how do you become impervious to the environment that you have no control over? Like, yes, in a control. And this is the monk thing. I actually agree with that criticism because I I think that like it would be truly much easier for me to just go like sit in the Himalayas with no responsibilities except for like staring at a leaf and I got to pee and I got to eat and I got to sleep. That's all I got to do. Like I can't fail. Like like it's the only thing and I give up my whole life and like it's it's not it's just cheating. Like it's not it, you're, like it's the thing at its core and I get it. But if you're not doing that to return you're not doing that to be like, now I want to go back to the real thing and like mm. kind of live somewhere between knowing that like the perfect state needs to also be devoid of like external simulation, like to be mm. truly, you know, like undistracted and, and, or whatever, that's fine. But like, I, the in-between is tough. And like, I'm also not somebody that I think what's important context for this conversation and anyone who's listening or even you to some extent is that like, I am not somebody who experiences the world in an intuitive way. I come across like somebody who has great intuition because of a compensation mechanism I developed very early on when I realized that I had zero intuition. When it comes to like feelings and emotions, like I, I don't really know what they are. I know what they, like I know how to describe them. But when I get into a situation and I feel something, the only thing that I feel in a way that I think people feel regular emotions is anger or frustration. Every other emotion starts from some analysis. It starts from some like situational patching where I'm going, like, is this like is this an appropriate time to be happy? Right? Like, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And so I find it really hard to imagine this world where you're you're just like going with how you're reacting and dealing with it because without metacognition, because I don't really have anything without that. My entire model of what an emotion is, is based on metacognition. Like it has nothing to do with like some, like people talk all the time about like physical intuition in their body. They like not, not my existence. Like it's all a construct of my understanding of things it, like that's the only so way i've you, ever been able to put two and two together. you don't experience like you don't experience gut feelings or, or getting a good feeling about something or a bad feeling about something 
you do you find that your cognition or your your logical analysis just interjects too fast or is it just something that doesn't happen like you don't have any body feel like okay when you found out that amy was pregnant yeah. did you have any body feelings of excitement or no brain oh. first there brain first okay brain first of like that's there's so much wrapped in that and then i start to untangle what it is and i go appropriate emotional response to x level uh, of information is blah and it starts happening and this is not because i don't think i have those feelings deep down because i like i don't think it's that i don't think that they're not there i think that my there is like a cord that got cut or something like i vaguely know that they're there like you talk about gut feelings my gut is so unreliable because I can't read it. I don't really know what it means. Like it, I, I feel sometimes I have a gut feeling and I'm like, what, what are you, what are you saying? I don't like, I can tell sometimes that I'm having a feeling and I have, I've never had the ability to like gut check my own gut. So for me, anything that isn't frustration based mm. is coming out of a, what's the appropriate reaction or like, I would say, Face stimulations, like stimulatory stuff is easy, but that's not really emotion to me. Joy, happiness, these things, they're, I don't just like feel them because like, and I, I think people like Amy does and like falling in love with her and getting to know her is like taught me that there's this, like, there's this whole other part of experience that I have no, like I've not taken part in my entire life. And that's fine. <laughs> Right, because there are that just means there's tons of different ways to live and interact with the world. But I think a lot of these conversations, like the one we're having around what presentness is and like what is possible and what is self, they're all mired in this problem where like we're all the operational definitions of every second word we're saying are different for almost everyone. Mm. Like like we're just like throwing language out there that's so imprecise when it comes to the complexity of the thing we're talking about that the right. conversation sounds the same every time you have it because you can't really dig any further by talking about it. Um, and that's why I just go, I'm just going to sharpen this one fucking knife of language because it's all we got. Like all I can do is like unpack things with language. The only thing that allows me to express it to other people. So I'm that's why I love conversation. And I'm obsessed with coming up with ways to explain stuff and using analogies to explain stuff and finding bridges between other people and their understanding because information to me is not valuable or real until another person has it too. anything that i felt that i don't truly feel anyone else has ever understood i consider to be on some base level invalid because hmm. like i could just think or i could think anything like like my brain can think of whatever it wants there's no like limiter there so i need some external validation for this. i need to have some way and a great way to do that is have somebody else go yeah that and you're like okay thank god i'm not crazy like you also mm. roughly understand what I'm talking about here. Like there's not, a, you know, like you like bananas, me too. Okay, like it's, you know, like we both like bananas. I understand, like whatever liking a banana means, means you like to put it in your face and whatever the thing that happens in your face is good. Like we've we found something here, you know, that we can build on. Do so you think that like any information or experience that can't be replicable in another person's mind or can't be replicable as a concept or an abstraction is not a valid, a bit of information it's, to me this. it lacks something important that mm -hmm. differentiates it between all things that arise from within mm -hmm. like that's i think it's not that it's invalid 
in some objective way. I don't even like, I don't even know what that would mean. I just mean that like, it's, if you don't have that, it's dangerous. If you don't have that, you can get carried away believing in the things that you think without ever bothering to check them anywhere else. Right. And it's a good safety mechanism to know that it, like, if you can't explain an idea, you don't understand it mm. on some level to me, like you may, but that, you know, it, it, and I understand like the difference, right? Like genius athlete can't explain the way he does a thing, but he can do it or whatever. He or she genius mm. athletes can be both genders or gender X. Um, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, I understand the distinction there. So that's the objection somebody would have like, well, what, yeah. and I get it but they don't understand. They just do like, they actually don't. That's my point. Like they're just doing it. They, they have a physical understanding of it. They have a, they have a version of understanding, but it's not a version of understanding that they can take outside of themselves. And mm. that is something for me for for whatever reason, maybe it's just cause I am very good at the other thing where I just look at it and I go, the most important thing is the stuff that you can take outside of yourself. Cause otherwise right. like, how are you verifying that it does, the thing that you think or that it is the thing that you think. Yeah. So, you know, what, what you just said, that, that that's really interesting, this idea that, you know, an athlete who is incredible at what they do can't necessarily explain what they do, but they, they, they know on this level that is subconscious or not meta enough or not um, translated effectively into language. Like, I know, like, in my other podcast, The Art of Move, what we do is we look at these athletic behaviors, we watch them in slow motion, and we break down the patterns of what they're doing and why they're doing it and how you can train these patterns yeah. to emulate these athletics. And we're actually doing what an athlete could fail to do, which is to look outside and to analyze the patterns and then to translate it into, it's like, okay, well, you can do this. Now, I think this is the issue where if a person like a monk who is, or let's not even say a monk, let's just say someone who is just genuinely content and present with their experience. They don't think about how to be content and present with their experience, but they can be, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, Agreed. and, you know, just because they can't necessarily translate it into language because they're, they're because maybe the reason that they're content with their experience is because they're unburdened with the responsibility of translating their state of being into language. I, I like think that that is the actual reason. Yes. Like you don't have to understand it past yourself. And if you're going to limit it there, yeah. But then like, you can't be a part of the world. You can't interact with other people. You can't do things. Well, you, like could. You, you could in theory, because, but you don't necessarily have to explain your state of being or justify your state of being to other people. You can still interact with the world and you can still be aware of yourself and your actions and you can still have these. Yeah, things. you're right. You you can. But like, I don't want to hang around with you if your explanation for everything you do is like, just because I'm living presently, man. Like, and like, I'm like, well, I, I need you to like put socks on or whatever. Like, I, like it, it's <laughs> like there is some I'm saying in the like social world, in the actual real world that we live in. I agree that you could find communities that you could live in where like you could all agree to some idea where you go like we're just. Like you're always allowed to explain it by this like thing, right? Like whatever right, thing you here's, do. Here's the thing is I think people who are truly present aren't explaining it by the fact that they're present. They'll be, they, they might say, it's like, oh, you know, like I try to be grateful for what I have. They'll have some other ambiguous explanation 
or they'll be so focused on the, the matter of fact experience of it because they might not even break it down into the abstraction that they're present. Be like, like oh, what? people that are truly present like you can't you can't point at a single human being and prove in any way to me that there is a person that is truly present like what does that even mean that's my problem with it like like how how do we verify that in any capacity which is really this is the entire argument right we were talking about the limitations of breaking things down into first principles right and that's how this conversation evolved into what it is now and what i find interesting is like if you were going to say you know you, your your definition of presence is is I, I like the way you put it is like just being in front of your face you know like yeah. not necessarily being like a little half step behind thinking about what you're going to do yeah and you you kind of have that when you're having a conversation you're watching these thoughts kind of unfold or or appear in space and and yes it is you who are saying them and the thoughts are coming to you as you're saying them and there's no lag between what you're saying but right now because you're listening to me you're analyzing everything you're creating a model and then from that model you're going to access whatever flow state there is and be in the present moment and talk yeah i mean i also just like have terrible like i have a diagnosed attention disorder so like mm. i'm sure that part of my need to do this is that because I can't sustain focus for any period of like seconds. Like, like the only way that I can string things together is by like thought, blah, like, and then like create a bunch of like messy, you know, guesses between the next thing. Like, otherwise I just lose the thing entirely. Mm. Right. Like, so I'm sure that presentness and it, like attention and presentness to me have a very, they have some relationship Yeah. that I don't fully understand, but I do know that, they seem like right beside each other. Like attention seems like something you need to cultivate to be present. Seems mm-hmm. like thing, something you need to control. And in fact, presentness may just be being able to control that spotlight of attention, like with no shake, right? Like with, with no variability and just go like, this is what I'm focusing on. And then people that are very good start to expand the, like the radius of that spotlight. Right. Or they expand how fast they can swivel that spotlight or they expand. Maybe there's two spotlights that they can use at once. But it, like I, that's sort of the analogy that I would use. Um, and I think maybe where I get off the train is like. I shouldn't say I don't believe there are people that are truly present. What I really mean to say is I don't believe there's anyone with a base psychology like mine that's truly present. Right. Sure. There might be people out there living some weird experience that I don't understand that can access this. And that's great. They're missing out on something I have then. Like there's an exchange, Um, but I can only analyze from my own experience. And as much as I want to imagine other people's experiences, if the particular experience that someone else is having can't be translated to another medium, then Mm -hmm. by definition, it's the one one experience I can't understand. That's why I love the translation because I can understand somebody else's experience that is totally different than mine, like my partners who lives in a very intuitive, emotional way, who experiences things completely differently from me and who used to confuse me and now makes a ton of sense because we've found ways to articulate those differences in models and frameworks and analogies and everything else. And so now I see this entire other existence that another human being has. And then I take that in the world and I go, oh, maybe you're like her. Suddenly I'm like, way better with an entire group of people than I used to be because I have this map. So right. I always want that map. 
And the problem with the like presentness people is like, you're telling me you can't give me a map. So like, I can Whoa. never understand this. Like I, so I see I, no I way think, to. I think a map, has, a map has started to almost emerge a little bit throughout this conversation of what we could define as, as a, you know, a state of presence. Some of the definitions that have come up have been a state of focus. And for me, I love that you brought that up because I was also diagnosed as ADHD. I, you know, had it so bad to the capacity where I couldn't read more than a paragraph in a book without getting totally derailed by, you know, just the distractions of my own mind. And what I found was the practice of meditation. Um, you know, I use Sam Harris's waking up app. I think you used that too. I think you were the one who told me about it. That's the I have. Yeah, and and I found that the practice of meditation is is really a practice of cultivating the capacity to focus. I've been very fascinated with uh, the idea that if if neuroplasticity is a real thing, then in theory I should be able to change my neurological framework to cultivate more focus and and be able to sustain my attention for longer periods of time. And even doing a ten to twenty minute meditation every day uh, consistently has allowed me to access these states of focus and not be derailed by every passing thought or every external stimuli and and be able to stay on one track for longer periods of time. It's allowed me to read books for hours uninterrupted. It's allowed me to basically do work for uh, you know at least more than an hour uninterrupted. And that state of being for me is what I imagined presence to feel like. So, we could say, you know, presence is a state of focus. Presence is a state of not being disturbed by the the past or the future. And I don't mean not, not thinking about it, but not being disturbed by the past or the future. It's, you know, developing that selective ignorance to other things that would disturb your emotional state of being in your present experience as it relates to your present experience. It's, um, you know, I'm with like I. The the thing you're reaching at, I think, is incredibly useful and functional. Like being in control of your own attention is a superpower. Like I I see like the other side of the fence. I can't I can't get over it, but I see what it, my life could be like if I could actually act on all the things I wanted to. And I look out into the world and I see people who are accomplishing great things, and I go, this, this is no longer confusing to me how you're doing this. Clearly, what you're doing is just like you are able to act on your own intentions and like focus your attention on whatever you want all the time. Right, like uh, a, a great example of something like this is like people like to shit all over Elon Musk, right? Because he's a little nuts, and that's true. Uh, and you know, I'm not going to take that away from the people that think he's nuts, but he's also like somebody that has tirelessly dedicated himself to like various causes for years and years, and from basically nothing, like he started PayPal, and now he makes rockets, and like that transition is because he was like, I'm going to fucking make rockets. And I look at that guy and what he's accomplished and I go, yeah, success. There are lots of people look at it and go, I don't know, your family was rich or like your just business was right place, right time. Or like, I don't, there's some success that you look at and you go, I think what you did was you got up every day and you tried your best at something. And if you actually do that for like 20 years, like, and you're in like any kind of like neutral to advantageous socioeconomic situation, like you're going to, you're going to be in a good spot. Right. And if you get lucky, you're going to be like a billionaire. Right. And so if what you're getting at at presentness is this idea of like, I search for this every day, I, every night before I go to bed, I try to do intention setting for the next day. Mm. And I go like, 
I would like to plan out my whole day, right? Like I, I, I to the second. And if I had like a, a plan in front of me that was like that updated every second, there was like a line I could follow, I might be able to do it. But every day I make it like about five minutes in and I fall apart. <laughs> like every day I'm like, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I won't do this, I won't do this. And like five minutes after I'm up, I've like zoned out, like looking at my toe. And I'm like, God damn it. Like now, like it's ruined. Like I, <laughs> because I like, I can't get back on the track. The track starts at the end of the day. And so if what you're getting out of presentness is like, can you spend a whole day doing what you wanted to do? Then yeah, I think that's, that's something that's worth chasing. And there are people who cultivate that a lot. And there are people who are very good at like, getting back into it when they fall out. Mm. And I do think meditation helps with that. And I'm behind that as a functional mapping to what presentness is. But I think that's very different from what it gets thrown around as in a lot of spiritual community, like very, right. very different. But I like that. I want that. That's what I'm chasing all the time. Can I live an intentional day where I focus my attention on only the things I'm trying to and nothing else? Because then I am present. Like then I then I am in control. I just have never come close. And you know it, it's it's funny because that's that that state that you just said. It's like I will actually plan my day to the minute some days. And for me, if I hit thirty to forty percent, that's like my best case scenario. Um, because you know I I'm also whenever I plan my day for some reason I also fail to a factor in the fact that I need to eat and that I need to use the bathroom and that I have a partner that I right. want to interact with. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I failed to factor in all these other things that would potentially derail me. But if I hit 30 to 40%, it's like, okay, cool. Like, that's good. Can I notch that up the next day a little bit? Um, it's not something that I'm great at. And I don't even think that uh, scheduling, hyper-scheduling everything. Like, for me, I like having room for spontaneity and creativity, which is, you know, it, it's it's a dangerous place to allow yourself to get to because sometimes spontaneity, I spontaneously find myself on my bed scrolling memes on Instagram for a half hour. Right. Yeah. Um, so what you're, what, you know, I, I like one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't really broach was this, uh, this sort of spiritual language that becomes damaging or, or destructive. And I think you kind of covered why, uh, the imprecision of spiritual, I, like spiritually idealizing a concept like presence can be damaging because it, it, it takes away some of the practical usefulness of it. And a lot of the, you know, a lot, the, the ambiguity become, makes people chase something that doesn't necessarily really have a clear endpoint. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, Cal Newport wrote this book called Deep Work. And he claimed that one of the most valuable assets um, in the modern workforce is the capacity to pay attention, the capacity to follow one stream of thought or focus on one task yes. at a time. Um, and he, he references a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain as you know, one of the principal ways that, uh, that explains why our brains are not focusing on one thing at a time. If we think about using the internet um, we look at snippets, we look at little bits of information and we try to get uh, like at this big picture from this collage of little micro bits of information, as opposed to say reading a book, which follows one thread of thought for, you know, 200 pages. And, um, I think that, you know, for me, presence has turned into when I'm pursuing presence in my life, 
I am pursuing the ability to a focus on what's in front of me for a sustained period of time and to follow through on what I intend to execute on first and foremost without being derailed by my own emotions by uh, you know moderate or mild distractions or interruptions the ability to stay on track and if I get derailed then to get back on track as soon as possible that for me is is uh, presence for me is the the the, the closing of a gap between my intention and my action. Great. And you've just given it a like language map and now it has meaning. Right? And I right. think that's my point. Like when you when you take away the ability to map it, you you make it devoid of meaning and now mm. you're chasing an idealized nonsense thing that can be turned into anything and can be used to fool people and can be used to lead people on because it has it doesn't have meaning. Like so like you're you giving your definition of presence there automatically validates to me what presence is because you said a series of things that make sense now i know what you're chasing now i have an understanding of what i might look for in your behavior to verify that it was happening i have an understanding of how you might measure it and so now it's like a great thing now it's a chaseable thing it's when people say anything that is just stops at it's just a thing that like you have to experience to understand and there is no way to explain it where i'm like okay well then i i don't what like it's not helpful. Like right. you are, you have said nothing. You under, like, and they go, no, I'm saying everything, man. And I'm like, no, <laughs> because saying implies that it's leaving you. Right. Like, and you might be feeling everything. You might have all the fucking answers. Maybe you are in the light and I'm in the dark, but I'm still in the dark. And you're shining, you're not shining any light at me when you say this thing. And, and it, you know, it doesn't matter how bright you are, if not. So I don't know. I feel like connecting with other people is, something I deeply value. And so right. this is also, but like something that like we're, everyone values. Like, I, like every creature is like programmed to not want to be alone. Mm. So like, I don't, it's not a me thing. It's like a mammal thing. Yeah. Um, so, so. Yeah, okay. So the frustration of having someone be like, oh, you, you told me nothing. And they're like, well, no, I, I, I did everything to, to do it. Right. There's this, I think, what you're describing is almost a necessity of developing or cultivating the skill of being able to linguistically break down. And, you know, we took over an hour for me to come up with some sort of linguistic map of what I meant by presence. Totally. Because the ideas and because the, the concepts are so ambiguous, they're so ethereal, they're so wrapped up in a lot of spiritual mumbo jumbo and jargon that there is no clear endpoint. Now, what's interesting is, you know, from that starting point to say, okay, well, presence is a state of focus where you close the gap between your intention and your action. The next issue is like, why is there a gap between your intention and your action? Where Besides the like literal mechanical lag, like there is a, li a literal gap in physical reality between yeah. those things. Yeah. So but even is, is there a psychological reason? Is there... Is there a, you know, a, a, like a, a more macro physiological reason? Like one of the things that I was kind of playing with was this idea of being desensitized to dopamine, right? Because, yeah. and, and that was why I got you to do that experiment where you had no stimulation for yes. a couple of days at a time to see if it would sort of bring really back of, 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 yeah, it's, it's a terrible exercise. It really sucks, but. It, it was also, great for like a week afterwards. I felt invincible for about a week. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then, so for, and then it went away. And I was like, yeah. Christ, if I do that every time, like that's, that's horrible. 
<laughs> and you know, like I, I don't know, I've I've done it, I've done it a couple of times where for those who are listening, it's a dopamine detox where for two days you have no stimulation whatsoever. Um, I've done it while fasting before too, where you don't eat anything for two days. You just drink water with salt in it so you don't like die yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, you don't have a phone, you don't have a computer, you're not listening to music, you don't have books, you have literally no stimulation. You can go for walks. You can uh, you can do anything but stimulate yourself in any way. And the idea is that because our modern lifestyle is so inundated with excess stimulation, instant gratification, things like sugar, social media, porn, like all these different things that sort of like hyper stimulate us, eventually our reward centers that produce dopamine, that that neurotransmitter that, that is associated with rewards becomes desensitized, our motivation decreases, our focus decreases, and we're always looking for the next instant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that experiment was like proof positive to me of my like criticism of mom. Like, I was in that state, like when I did that, where I was not in a good place, and I like too could not read a paragraph of a book. And then I spent two days doing this, and at the end, I read a whole book in one shot. Like my, like it all it took was two days for my brain to be like, "Holy fuck!" Just put anything in front of me. Like I will focus on it. Just give me something. And what that was proof of to me was like, yeah, like if I just remove everything, this isn't a hard game. Like, yeah, like of course my. But the problem is that the world is full of things that I can't remove, and yeah. so you know it, I can't spend. I can't do a job that is sitting on my couch staring at a wall. Like that's not like, so, you know, I automatically in order to make an income to like make a living, I have to do something that involves a computer and interacting with other people and accomplishing things and stimulating myself and motivating myself. And now I'm like trapped in the loop again. Like, like I've, I've turned on, you know, anything that requires a computer is just so destructive to mm -hmm. like desensitizing you very quickly. Um, like, especially for me, like I just lose it. Like as fast as it comes back is as fast as it goes away. Like I need to do it every day or it's gone. That's, but that's the way I am with everything. I, I can't sustain anything without absolute execution. And this is, you know, this is goes back to like why monks are cheating basically at this, at yeah. this whole game, right? Is cause they, they remove all this stimulation. They remove a good all this title stimulation. for a book. Why monks are cheating. It's a great, okay. That, the, there you go. There's my first book right there. The truth <laughs> behind, you know, present presentness and, and existence um, nothing against so, monks but they're no no because again like there we, we we tend to learn from the extremes in the same way that you can learn about athletic training from uh, it is that it's a boundary condition yeah you go well it's possible if you just take everything away okay so what happens if we add one thing back in two things back in probably it's not possible anymore but there's some version of it that becomes possible where where maybe you're not in a monk like state but you can mitigate the distraction enough to live more to, to, sorry to use the term more presently than you are no but now i get what you mean like now yep. it's easy right like this is is it like i think what the thing i want to like make the distinction of or like point out is one of the reasons that i am the person that i am is because you brought up presentness earlier. You were like presentness. And I was like, what does that mean? And then we like had a whole thing. And, and like an hour later, you were like this. Great. The thing you're doing where you have a concept and you don't understand it, I don't have that. Mm. Like there, I'm, I'm, if, you, if I think something and you're like, what? I'm like, okay. And I will come back to you with like an analogy or an explanation. I don't understand. Amy does this too. She'll be like, 
this thing. And I'll be like, what does that mean? She'll be like, I have no idea. And I'll be like, well, how, like, how is it a thing then? Like, how are you like saying it out loud? How is it even in your brain with that? Like, it's like no roots. It's just like the top of the iceberg or something. And I don't, I, think I don't that, know what that yeah, means. So this is, this is the fundamental reason why something like psychotherapy, for example, is very useful because for the most part, people have experiences, but don't know necessarily how to interpret them. And you know, I was re I was rereading one of Jordan Peterson's book where he talks about um, viewing his psychotherapy patients, and he said, you know, one of the one of the main things is you need to sort out your thoughts or your feelings, your emotions with uh, concepts. And usually, your mind is a really unreliable. For most people, your mind is an unreliable place for that to occur. So you need to talk to somebody. Like for yep. me conversation is almost like my own thoughts out of necessity following one path of logic and reason versus when i'm actually thinking my thoughts just seem to be more in snippet form where it's just like one thing going after another it doesn't follow a thread having a conversation i need to string my thoughts together within a system of grammar and and logic and and that is useful. So when 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 I have an emotional experience, or I have an internal experience, or I have, uh, you know, an experience in meditation that is extraordinarily hard for me to describe in terms, then having a conversation about it or writing it out is is incredibly useful because I don't because I'll have I'll have experiences that I don't know how to describe or I can't explain the meaning of quite yet, but like, as we just saw, you know, I didn't have a working definition linguistically of presence at the start of this conversation, and now I do. So you just said in different words, ex like the exact thing I was trying to, like I was articulating earlier. This is my point around why it adds validity when you say something out loud to another person. This, you're talking about like, oh, when I don't say it out loud, it's going ever. That's my point. It could be anything. Like when it's in here, it doesn't have structure and you have no verification. What you just said in essence was when I say things out loud, there is like validity to them that doesn't exist when they're in my own head because like now I've been forced to follow some structure because if I don't, the other person is like, what? And that, and so, but that's the entire point I was making earlier. Like I don't really understand valuing experience that can't, that doesn't come out that way or at least not trying to make every experience come out that way, because you know that until you do, it's stuck in this locked box of like, what the fuck is this? Like, I just, I'm like feeling bad. And I, I, and I don't know why, but like, I always know why I'm feeling bad. It doesn't help. Like, it, <laughs> it doesn't help. <laughs> this is, and this is the beginning of the conversation. Like, I stopped studying physics and I started studying the physics of myself. Right. And I started mapping everything in myself to first principles explanations. And I created all kinds of analogies and metaphors and frameworks for understanding how I worked. And I got to the same fucking point I got to with physics, which is like, this still doesn't help me like do the thing. It still doesn't right. help me actually execute. And that seems to be a very fundamental skill. Just dampening the oscillation. Right. Like it's just like, like keeping the spotlight in one place whatever analogy you want to use, that is required to do something. Right. With any precision. Um, and so, you know, like just coming full circle, like it's still the same issue. And this is why you asked me at the beginning why I'm confused. 
well, this is why, because I always understand why I feel the way that I feel. Mm-hmm. And like in therapy, I've had this experience where my therapist is like, he's like a little confused by what's going on, right? Like we have these conversations where he's like, it seems like you understand this and what you need to do next. And I'm like, yep. He's like, cool. So like, are you going to do it? And I'm like, nope. (laughs) And he's like, okay, like, let's figure out how to, you know, get you to do it. And I'm like, yeah, like, that's why I'm here. But like, that's the extent of it. Like, I've never gotten past that. And I've never talked to a single human being who has been able to articulate to me out loud in words I understand how to flip that switch in a way that isn't like do a giant dopamine fast to the point where your brain is like so desperate to flip any switch that you can focus, right? Like that's an easy solution, but it's not a sustainable one. How do I like, what's the mental trick? What's the model? What's the like way that I can grasp that in a moment that I need it versus just wiping the whole system every couple of weeks and, and going on. And so that's you why know, I'm confused. For me, you know, I, I taught I taught habit courses and a lot of the habit course was centered around trying to create these systems to trick yourself to do the thing. Yeah. Because fundamentally, that's kind of what it feels like. The way that the analogy I use is that you're always playing chess with a lower version of yourself that wants to fuck off and do nothing. Or that wants the easy way out. And you know basically it's it's how do you how do you cultivate more strength of your conscious intention over your lower order lower order impulses and for me i had tricks like you do like i i had this thing that was like a daily minimum where it was like a very easily attainable small thing that you would do and you would do it first thing in the morning when your willpower was the highest and you're you know you were yes Uh, I would do things like if I knew that I was going to wake up and the first thing that I was going to do was look at my phone was I would charge my phone in the other room in a drawer and I bought an alarm clock so that I wouldn't have my phone next to me. So the first thing I did wasn't look at my phone and start hyper stimulating myself with random stimulation. So it's kind of understanding, you know, and, and even though, even though we said monks are cheating, by removing these things, it was cultivating selective ignorance. It's harder on a computer. If you work on a computer and you know that the internet is a few clicks away, that's the hardest thing. That's why that's why like website blockers exist. That's why people have phone timers. That's why we have all these things, because our brains are are basically hardwired in a way that is at a disadvantage fundamentally against these distractions so i you know one of the things i taught was environment design it's like set up all the things that you want to do easily accessible and make all the things that you don't want to do as as inaccessible as possible and it seems ridiculous it literally seems like you're like you know going to war against this like spoiled brat that doesn't want to do anything but the ultimate reality is if you are if you don't want to have to do a dopamine detox every week just to resensitize yourself to be able to focus there are things that you can do to optimize your environment. There are things that you can do to at least stack the deck in your favor and also not put a ton of pressure on, on yourself. I find like that moment that you said earlier where it's like, you know, I'll plan my whole day out. Then I find I'm just like staring at my toe for 20 minutes and I realize I'm not doing anything. It's like that can feel like your whole day is lost. But, you know, one of the one of the mental tricks that I've used is having these daily minimums that are super easily attainable that usually cascade into more things. I mean, like I, I've helped other people 
getting back into fitness routines by doing nothing but making their bed in the morning and not looking at their phone. And then eventually that over yeah. time you build on these daily minimums. It, I mean, I use a similar philosophy. Like I have things I have to do in the morning before I can do other things. Like I, I have this additive list. I've just been slowly adding to over time of things I have to do before I have coffee. Yeah. And like, it's, it started as I need to hit a bullseye on my dartboard. <laughs> right. And then eventually I got good enough at that, that like, it didn't take very long. Yeah. So then it was like, I'm also going to do it around the world in the dartboard. Right. And eventually I got good enough at that, that like it, it, this whole process started to take a, a less than five minutes, even after I just woke up. Then I started going, okay, I'm going to do 10 pull-ups. Okay. I'm going to do like 30 squats. Okay. Like I'm going to, you know, like, if the garbage and whatever needs to be emptied, I'm going to do that. Like I just keep slowly adding to this like list of things. Cause you're right. When you wake up, your willpower is at its highest. It's so obvious to me. Like I've recently changed my entire sleeping schedule uh, for the first time in my entire life. And you know, I've struggled so, so much with sleep mm -hmm. and like, I've been going to bed, you know, and like at like 11 o'clock and waking up at six or seven in the morning for like the last month, like every day, weekend, wow. weekday, you know, and that's what I've noticed is like that morning time, all my additional free time used to be at night. It used mm. to be from like 11 o'clock at night to two in the morning. And well, now it's from like six in the morning to like nine in the morning. And my ability to accomplish anything in three hours at those times is like, even though I wasn't, I wasn't tired before because I was somebody that wasn't tired. Like I had no willpower left. It was 11 o'clock. I'd use it all. I, I want to focus. I want to just go back for a second to your analogy of playing chess with a lower version of yourself, because I think one of the things I find problematic is that, yes, you're playing chess with a lower version of yourself, but that lower version of yourself will be like, blah, and flip over the chessboard and be like, I win. And you're like, you didn't win. You just flipped over the chessboard. Now we have to like start again. And it's like, I win. Like it's not playing by your rules. And that's what I find so frustrating is you are trying to play chess with something that doesn't understand chess and thinks that it can win, like it cheats and it has no shame. It has no, like, it's not weighed down by your moral, you know, concepts and things. It's just like, I want the thing. It reminds yeah. me of this experiment that was done where I can't remember the specifics of it, but essentially, I think we've talked about this. They gave monkeys a task where they were like, if you can identify the um, pile, the like pile of chocolate chips or whatever, food pellets, whatever thing that they wanted, that is smaller. Like we'll mm. give you some reward, right? Like we'll, we'll do this. And they, and, and monkeys are very good at this. They're like very, very good at these like very fast identification tasks. Um, in some cases they're better than people, but what they found was no matter what they did, if they made one of the piles big enough, the monkeys at some point would just be like, well, I just want the big pile of chocolate chips. Like it, it didn't like they left the experiment and they were like, no, now there's just a like now I pick the big pile of chocolate chips, like because it's a huge pile of like I just want the big pile of things. Like there was some override where like no matter the conditioning that they gave them, right? If they gave them enough of an immediate reward, they were like, well, fuck all of this, give me the big pile. Mm. And that's the thing I feel like I'm always fighting against inside of me. It's like yeah. this monkey that's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Eat all the cookies. Like what, what, what do you mean? Like work really hard to have one cookie. There's a box of cookies. Just eat yeah. them. Like you idiot. Like, what do you, like, you don't have to do any of this, you know? And so I just, I, the, yeah, you can instill habit and action and trick yourself. But what I'm looking for is in moment, 
modification. I know that I can force myself into habits. I know that I can insti- like do fast. I know that I can do these big things. Hmm. What I struggle with is in that situation where it's the middle of the day and I've lost the thread and, and I'm spiraling. And I did like wake up and not look at my phone or whatever. But since then, something has happened to disrupt it. How do I get it back in that moment? Because the micro saves in the middle of all of it are how you actually, like anyone can like follow a routine. It's like in the field, can you do this? Like, can you be like, whoa, life threw a curveball at me and I'm still just like doing it. That's where I feel like. And so again, I think, no I think that is, if we're, if we're talking like that's the definition of presence is, is that conscious override of those low, yeah. lower desires. And I think it is some, like my experience is that it is something that can be trained. It's not something that you'll have perfect adherence to over time. And it's unfortunately subject to things like physiology. If you had a shitty sleep, your willpower sucks. If you didn't yeah. eat properly or you've been emotionally disturbed, you're more likely to make impulsive decisions. But I think at the end of the day, these are things that can be cultivated over time. Uh, it's still worth knowing, like when you were saying, it's like, I'm fascinated by myself. I think that version of self that doesn't play by the rules Try to figure out what rules it does play by or what impulses it does play by. And then working with those those uh, sort of modes of operation is a fascinating endeavor in and of itself. That's the thing that's interesting about myself, though. It's not that I, like, implicitly think I'm interesting. I'm not. What is interesting is what you just described. That's what I mean by being self-interested. Like, there is an endless return here. It's Like, I am not interested in me. I'm boring. I Like, I, I don't think I'm interesting as like a person. I'm interested in exactly what you just said. I'm interested that I obviously have none percent of the control I could have. Like any evaluation of myself makes that extraordinarily clear. So that pursuit is super interesting because unlocking any little bit of incremental usefulness feels like a, like you're literally unlocking a superpower. We were like, oh my God, like I've actually, like I've actually gone to bed like at a reasonable hour for a month straight for the first time since I was like 10, like <laughs> actually. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, that means that I can do that. It's not just an idea now, I've actioned it. I've put it out there. I've got evidence to suggest that I can sustain this behavior. And now the part of me that wants to stay up is starting to lose the battle because it like, right. I've been actually able to sustain it. Um, so. I don't know. I, these are tangents. Well, and you know what? My, uh, this piece of paper is a fucking thing. mess. <laughs> Good. Let me see it. Let's see the scribbles. I mean, yeah, it started scribbling, and then I just got into a, like, draw a shape, color, and the shape, draw a shape, attach the shape, color, and the shape. The, the one thing that I'm going to disagree with you on your tangent is that you're not an inherently incredibly interesting an interesting i mean i think everybody's interesting yeah yeah but i i I definitely i believe you are interested good right like i was that's why why these conversations on set the tone happen and you know looking at the clock it's hard to believe that it's already been close to an hour and a half um, if anyone wanted to watch these conversations live in real time, we record them on nofilter.net, which is a live interactive platform. You can obviously stream these from all uh, podcasting platforms like Spotify, we're working on getting them on Apple Podcasts. 
Um, this is hopefully the first of many conversations that Chris and I are going to be having because, frankly, I just love talking to him. And as you, I'm sure you could tell, we talk pretty uninhibited. Um, this is the Set the Tone podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, you can shoot me a message at media at nofilter.net and keep an eye on nofilter.net for any upcoming conversations between Chris and I and with the Set the Tone podcast in general. Feel free to ask questions live in the chat box and use the knock function to request to join the stream yourself and give your input on the topics that we are talking about. So Chris, thanks so much for coming onto the stream today. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Any closing thoughts that you wanna leave the audience of one with today? I'm funnier than I was on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know, I thought you were pretty funny. <laughs> All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Stephen, for joining on live as always, and we will catch you next time for the Set the Tone podcast. Thanks, man.